My name is Matt DeLockery, and when I was growing up, I missed out on some answers to some serious questions I had. Join me as I seek answers to those questions. In the last couple episodes, we saw that Jesus acted and taught like he had the authority to just do whatever he wanted, without regard for what anybody else thought, especially the religious leaders. So who did he think he was? Today we're going to work through the main categories of what Jesus thought about himself, specifically the ones that take him beyond a mere teacher or prophet. The first category we're going to look at is Messiah. Now, the first thing that we need to understand as we look at the Messiah is that no one at the time thought the Messiah would be God. Christians often connect these two concepts, but that's because we're reading our beliefs back into history. Christians think that Jesus is divine, and they think that Jesus is a Messiah, and somehow over the course of time, these two things just sort of got connected. In reality, though, they have absolutely nothing to do with one another. The word Messiah simply means anointed one in Hebrew. Christ, or Christos in Greek, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah. So that means that Christ is not really like a last name for Jesus. When you say Jesus Christ, you're saying Jesus the Messiah. So what did it mean to say that someone was the Messiah? How would someone living in Jesus' day have heard it? Very simply, saying that someone was a Messiah meant that a person was anointed by God, since that's what the word means. Usually, but not always, that person was the king of Israel. The first king of Israel, Saul, was anointed by Samuel. He was messiahed by Samuel to be king. David was anointed, messiahed, as king over Israel in 2 Samuel 23.1. Interestingly, Isaiah 45, uh, verse 1, says that Cyrus, the king of Persia, was actually anointed by God. He is said to be anointed in the same way as both Saul and David. Now, he was not the king of Israel, but he was still anointed, so the term could still apply to him. So, basically, anyone who was specifically anointed by God could have been called Messiah, since the term simply meant anointed one. However, the term most commonly referred to the king of Israel, and it is this meaning that was what was in people's minds in first century Israel. Now, there's a prophecy in 2 Samuel 7, 11, 15 uh, that we should be aware of, because everyone in Jesus' day would have known it and would have formed a big part of their idea about who this Messiah would or should be. In 2 Samuel, the prophet Nathan tells David, quote, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. End quote. The reason the Jews were expecting a Messiah, uh, specifically a, a king Messiah, anointed by God, was quite simply because God promised them one. It's a pretty good reason. 
this person would be a descendant of David because God promised David that someone from his line would do this. It's also worth noting that kings were supposed to lead their people into battle. David fought quite a lot of battles for Israel, and we know him especially from the first battle he ever fought. David killed Goliath in single combat. And given that the Messiah was supposed to be David's son, people were expecting someone who was like David, a warrior king. So people were expecting this descendant of David to be king, defeat Israel's enemies, rule over Israel, and set up a kingdom that would never end. In other words, once this descendant of David comes, he will set everything right, defeat Israel's enemies, put Israel back on top, and the kingdom that he establishes will never end. You can understand, then, why there would have been such a hope for a Messiah in the first century Israel, in a country that was promised a king by God and yet was ruled by outsiders, Gentiles, specifically Rome. God himself had promised that he would send someone to sort this out, and that person was the Messiah. Think back to our discussion about the kingdom of God and the fact that the Jews were expecting an earthly king to fight Rome. When you read passages like the one we just read from 2 Samuel, you can understand why they were looking for that. And you can understand why there was such an emphasis on Jesus' connection to David. Look at the Gospel of Matthew. Look how it opens up with the the genealogy uh, of Jesus. There's great emphasis placed on connecting him to David and showing that Jesus was, in fact, the son of David because the Jews were looking for a son of David. However, there was no single precise picture of what the Messiah would or should be like uh, or, or even accomplish that everyone agreed on. The Messiah was God's anointed one by definition, and the fact that the Messiah was to be the son of David meant that he would be a king. But there was considerable flexibility in what that meant, so different groups interpreted it differently. Basically, any person or movement that claimed to be bringing the return from exile and putting an end to the present evil age could be interpreted as messianic. And that leaves quite a lot of room for interpretation. Not surprisingly, then, there were a number of people, both before and after Jesus, who claimed that they were the Messiah. And that's something that a lot of people really aren't aware of. Uh, They think that Jesus was the only one who claimed to be the Messiah. He wasn't. A number of people did, both before and after him. I'll talk about a few of them in just a moment. Uh, But before I do that, I need to point out something else that people also thought the Messiah was supposed to be like, or supposed to do. Not only did people think that the Messiah was supposed to be a king, a lot of Messianic thought focused around what he would do with the temple. Many groups believed that the temple had been corrupted, and so it either needed to be cleansed or destroyed and rebuilt. And many individuals who either claimed directly to be the Messiah or wanted to be king and sort of connected, wanted to be king, they they sort of um, connected themselves in some way with the temple because that was one way to get yourself connected with uh, the role of Messiah in the minds of the average person. So here's some of the people who claim to be the Messiah. Uh, Some of these people actually claim to be the Messiah. Others just wanted to be king and drew on the ideas of the Messiah to support their claim. In the 160s BC, Judas Maccabeus led a revolt against the Seleucid Empire, uh, cleansed the temple, and founded a hundred-year priestly and royal dynasty. You ever heard of the Maccabees? Well, Judas Maccabeus is where it comes from. Um, Also, this is when Hanukkah started. 
it's not relevant to this. Just thought you want to know. Uh, that's where it comes from. Anyway, in 19 BC, Herod the Great, the, the one who killed the babies in Bethlehem in the Christmas story, began rebuilding the temple as part of founding his own dynasty. Uh, Herod was considered to be king by Rome, and he wanted the, as much support from the local population as he could get. So expanding the temple was part of what he did to try to get himself connected with this messiah or, or kingly thought in their minds. During the Jewish war from 66 to 73 AD, Menahem appeared in the temple in royal robes. He was attempting to signal that God was going to deliver the Jewish people through him, which was a messianic war. And after the war was over and the temple was destroyed, Simon Bargiora showed up, also in royal clothes, in the place where the temple had stood. And like Menahem, he was trying to draw on the ideas of the Messiah in a time of distress for their people. In the early 2nd century AD, Bar Kokhba led another revolt against Rome. He made coins and had them stamped with a temple. He directly tried to overthrow Rome, and as you might expect, didn't go very well. So there's a number of examples, and, and when you look at them, you can see how temple and kingship really go hand in hand. So when Jesus cleanses the temple by throwing over some tables and driving out the people who were buying and selling, he was performing an action that most would have considered to be messianic. When Jesus said that he would destroy the temple and build another one in three days, he was talking about something that most people would have considered to be messianic. The Messiah was God's anointed agent that would set things right, and it was commonly thought that the temple was either corrupted and needed to be uh, cleansed, or it needed to be destroyed and rebuilt. And so it had a central place in the idea, uh, central place in people's minds about the, what the Messiah uh would have been like as part of putting things back as they should be. Now, let's combine the idea of either cleansing or rebuilding the temple with the idea that the Messiah would be Israel's king who would fight Israel's battles and defeat their enemies. Now, think about Jesus. At the time of his death, he said that the temple needed cleansing and claimed that he would do it. But he hadn't done it. He fought no battles and defeated no enemies, at least from the perspective of most Jews. Then he was crucified by the Romans, the very people the Jews thought should have fought, he should have fought and defeated in battle. And this death, because it was on a cross, actually brought a curse from God. So when you look at it this way, you can see why a lot of Jews didn't believe that Jesus really was a Messiah. A prophet, maybe. He, be he preached obedience to God, albeit in a different way than they were used to. And he performed a lot of miracles, which would have meant that he was from God. And even though he did die in a shameful way, which, you know, that really wasn't out of character for a prophet. A lot of prophets got killed. So prophet, yes, but Messiah, no. Now, when we talked about the kingdom of God, we talked about the way that Jesus attempted to redefine what the kingdom meant. Jesus was focused on a spiritual kingdom rather than an earthly kingdom. And Jesus would argue uh, that he actually did defeat Israel's enemies. But he had redefined those enemies to be sin, death, and the Satan. And the way that he defeated them was by dying on the cross and rising again. Jesus would say he did set up a new temple. He gave the gift of the Holy Spirit to all those who followed him. And that makes each person a temple of God. 
So Jesus did think he was a Messiah. He acted like it and claimed it on numerous occasions, both by his actions, like cleansing the temple, and by his words. However, the core issue here uh, about Christianity is whether his attempt to redefine what the Messiah meant was legitimate. He'd redefined everything in spiritual terms instead of earthly terms. And the question that people in the first century would have had to answer was, could he do this? Was it actually a legitimate move to redefine the way the Messiah would be the Messiah? And that's why the question of the resurrection is so important. The early Christians claimed that God raised Jesus from the dead, thereby putting his divine stamp of approval on who Jesus was and what he did. So even if interpreting the Messiah that way was unusual, if God really did put a stamp of approval on Jesus, then it must be okay. The Christians argued that if God really was doing this, then the only thing to do at that point was to try to understand what he was doing, not decide that the way that you thought um, God should act is a better way. So it it all really boils down to the question, did God act or did Jesus really rise from the dead? Now, I'm going to do a whole series on whether or not Jesus actually rose from the dead, so we'll talk more about that later. For now, what you need to understand is that the issue of whether or not Jesus could have actually been the Messiah would have been one of the central issues of debate during his ministry and uh, early Christianity. Obviously, he did not fit the mold of what people normally thought a Messiah should look like. The question is, was his reinterpretation of the Messiah legitimate? Could he redefine Israel's enemies, change the battlefield, and replace the physical temple with a spiritual one? That is the question. Now that we've talked about the Messiah, the next title, uh, the next way Jesus thought about himself that we need to talk about is the Son of Man. This was the title Jesus most often used of himself. But it's not something he just made up. It actually comes from the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14 say, quote, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. End quote. So, In this passage, we find ourselves in heaven and see the Ancient of Days, who is God. And one like a son of man comes up to God, and the fact that he just comes up to God all on his own is significant all in and of itself. And God gives him an everlasting kingdom, you know, an eternal kingdom, and everyone on the whole earth will serve him. So the son of man character doesn't really sound like just any old person. After all, he walks up to God on his own, and he was given glory by God in an eternal kingdom so that everyone in the world should serve him. Something else interesting about this passage in Daniel 7 is that this is the only place in the entire Old Testament where we find the two phrases most commonly spoken by the historical Jesus. Son of man and dominion or kingdom of God. When Jesus called himself the son of man, which he did frequently, He was pointing back to this passage in Daniel. And especially when you consider the context of the chapter, uh, especially the the beastly kingdoms at the beginning of Daniel 7, which represented human kingdoms, 
The implication of this passage is that the Son of Man's kingdom would supplant or would be placed over or supersede all human kingdoms. This would have been seen as threatening by the Romans. And at his trial, when Jesus was asked by the high priest whether he was the Son of the Blessed One, he responded, quote, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. End quote. For this, he was charged with blasphemy and condemned to death. So what can we learn from this? Well, first of all, the Son of Man was a divine title. Whoever this figure was, he was not just a regular human. Jesus was referring to himself in divine terms. And interestingly enough, Son of God was not a divine title. Kings were often called sons of God. It just meant that they were related to God, albeit in a special way. But it was still a very human way. So contrary to what these phrases actually sound like, son of God is actually a human title and son of man is a divine title. So when Jesus was calling himself the Son of Man, he was referring to himself in divine terms. The second thing that we see here in this passage is that it's tied up with kingship in some way because the Son of Man is given a kingdom by God. Now, this passage in Daniel 7 may or may not have been a messianic passage originally, meaning it may or may not have had anything to do with the Messiah. However, it was read that way around the time of Jesus and especially when it was combined with Daniel 2 and Daniel 9. Both Daniel 2 and 7 point toward God destroying human kingdoms and setting up his own kingdom, and Daniel 9 talks about someone who is uh, anointed by God. Remember, Messiah means anointed one. Again, you can see how the Jews would have been expecting a Messiah, an anointed one, to fight the Romans and set up God's kingdom, or, to use the language from the Gospels, to set up the kingdom of God. In his book on the Jewish war in 6, 312-315, Josephus says that these passages in Daniel caused the Jews to become rebellious. He quotes part of Daniel 7 and blames that passage in particular for causing the Jewish war that ended up destroying the temple in AD 70. And this is the same passage that Jesus was quoting when he called himself the Son of Man. The only difference is he defined the Son of Man differently than everyone else. But make no mistake, when he called himself the Son of Man, everybody knew what he was talking about. A first century Jew would have probably read the passage about the Son of Man in Daniel 7 as a messianic passage. He probably would not have thought about the Son of Man in divine terms, but that's only because he would have been thinking about the Messiah, and because the Messiah was supposed to be human, those categories were not ones that they would have combined. Because Divine and human could not have been combined, at least in the minds of first century Jews. However, it does appear that Jesus did combine those uh, categories when he was thinking of himself. And the reason that we think that is not primarily because of how we read Daniel 7, though it does point in that direction. Jesus said and did quite a lot of things that show that he thought of himself in divine terms. So let's talk about those. And here we need to ask the question, did Jesus think he was God? Certainly the early Christians thought he was, but what did Jesus think? Well, Jesus said and did a lot of things that showed he thought of himself in divine terms. However, a lot of people think that these things are a result of legendary development in the Gospels. The idea behind this 
thought is that the earliest Christians start out with pretty simple beliefs about Jesus, but over time, legends grew and he became this divine figure we know of him as today, God and man in one. However, however, what they will say is that Jesus was not like that in the beginning. Also, they will say that Jesus never called himself God. And yes, it is true, he never said the words, I am God. However, I think the reason that he never said the words, I am God, was to avoid identifying himself with the Father. Instead, what he did was to say and do things that clearly put himself in God's place, and yet he always distinguished himself from the Father. Because of that, Christians later came to think of God as a trinity, but that's an entirely other subject that we're not getting into right now. We are simply asking, did Jesus think of himself in divine terms? And was this part of the Christian record from the beginning? We're not asking about the Trinity, how it could work out, or even whether Jesus' claim was real or not. We're just asking what he thought about himself. Let's take a look at some passage from the earliest gospel, the gospel of Mark, and see what it has to say. Mark 1, 2-3 says, quote, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. End quote. These point back to Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 43. If you look them up, you will see that the way is being prepared for God. And yet here we see it being prepared for Jesus. Jesus is having something prepared for him that is prepared for God. In Mark 1.17, Jesus says, quote, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men, end quote. We already talked about this in episode 3 of this series when we discussed Jesus calling the disciples. This points back to Jeremiah 16, and there God is the one who makes fishers of men. And yet Jesus is saying that he is making fishers of men. In Mark 125, we see that Jesus has authority over demons. It's not really a human thing. Humans can't control demons. Only someone above them can do that. In Mark 2, 1-12, we find one of the best examples of Jesus' claim to divinity. Let me read it to you in full. Quote, And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered there, so that there was no uh, more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. End quote. Now, what is so important about this passage is that we have a record of Jesus' enemies acknowledging 
he was claiming divinity. Verse 6 to 7 say, quote, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? End quote. By charging Jesus of blasphemy, they recognized that he was claiming to be God. And their charge makes perfect sense. After all, who can forgive sins but God? Moving on, in Mark 2.28, Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, God created the Sabbath, so only God has authority over it. So by claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus is claiming to be God. In Mark 3.27, Jesus says that he has come to bind the Satan. you got to ask yourself, can anyone other than God really bind the Satan? In Mark 4.39, Jesus is in a boat with the disciples in the middle of a storm and tells the wind and the waves, hush, be still. And the wind and the waves stop. Jesus shows that he has authority over creation. Who has authority over creation but God? So there's seven references to Jesus' divinity right there, and six of them come from Jesus himself. And that's just from the first four chapters of Mark. There's more. I could go on, but I think that's sufficient to show that the idea that the divinity of Jesus was a later invention is just nonsense. It was there from the very beginning. Now, let me reiterate, that does not mean that Jesus actually was divine. It just means that Jesus' divinity wasn't a later idea that Christians invented after the fact and that the earliest records, like Mark, didn't know anything about. Mark himself thought that he was divine. And you see this sort of thing all throughout the Gospels, you know, wholly apart from the places in the Gospel of John where Jesus just says straight out who he thinks he is, and he, you know, in divine terms. All throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus putting himself in God's place. When Jesus curses a fig tree, if you know that the fig tree is a representation of Israel, then you can see that he is judging Israel, and only God can judge Israel. If you look at the parable of the sheep and the goats, you see that he gives himself the responsibility of judging all people. Who can judge all people except God? And there are all kinds of things like this. Jesus thought that he was God, though in other places we see that he thought that he was actually distinct from God. And that's, again, where you get into the Trinity thing, and that's a whole other topic. What we have seen so far is that Jesus thought he was the Messiah, the anointed king of God. Jesus also thought that he was the son of man, the divine figure from Daniel 7, who would have an eternal kingdom and glory given to him by God. And Jesus thought he was divine. Uh, he thought that he was God, though he was also distinct from God. So, before we conclude this episode, I want to cover one other in top, one other important topic. I want to talk about what Jesus thought about his own death. Now, Jesus said that he would die for others. Uh, in Mark 10:45, he said, quote, "For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." End quote. Here I want to ask one final question about Jesus' understanding about himself. And this is less about who he was, but more about his purpose. The question I want to ask is, did Jesus predict his death? And I want to suggest that it's very likely that Jesus actually did predict his own death. Um, but I don't think that this particular instance of predicting something about the future implies that he has any sort of supernatural powers. You have to get that idea from somewhere else. I really don't think it would have been hard for someone like Jesus to predict he was going to die. 
After all, he was acting like a prophet and upsetting the powerful people in the process. Uh, would it really be surprising if he went the way of the other prophets and got himself killed? It's a pretty normal end for people who are prophets. And if you think about it, that isn't just an Israel thing limited to prophetic types. If you upset powerful people in the ancient world, and even in the modern world, bad things tend to happen. So you really don't have to believe that Jesus knew the future to believe that he predicted his own death. However, because it is a declaration he made about something that hadn't happened yet, some people are reluctant to accept that it actually happened. Muslims, in particular, don't believe that Jesus predicted his death because the Quran says that he didn't die. He only appeared to die. So, I'm going to give you four passages in which Jesus, Jesus predicted his coming, suffering, and death. And I'm going to explain how that we know that these things are actually authentic and not made up by Christians later uh, to make it look like Jesus predicted his death. Now, the reason that this is important, even if you're not Muslim, is because it shows us something about what he thought of his role as the Messiah. In Jesus' mind, the Messiah was not someone who would fight Israel's military battles and rule a physical earthly kingdom. In Jesus' mind, the Messiah was someone who would fight Israel's spiritual battles and free people from the power of sin, the Satan, and death. So Jesus' death was not a surprise to him that later Christians figured out how to rationalize. It wasn't an accident. From the very beginning, Jesus planned to die. So, let's look at the four passages in which Jesus predicted his death. They are 1. Mark 8, 31, along with Matthew 16, 21-23, and Luke 9, 22. Mark says, quote, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. End quote. Now, right after this, Peter rebuked him for saying that he was going to die. And then Jesus rebuked Peter and called him Satan. And this saying occurs in multiple sources, and it's embarrassing. It's really unlikely that early Christians would have made up a story about one of the main leaders of early Christianity, Peter, rebuking Jesus and then getting called Satan by Jesus. Finally, in this passage, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, which was common for Jesus, but is different than how early Christians referred to him. And so for all these reasons, it's likely original material that we're looking at rather than something that was added later on by Christians. Remember, we're not assuming that the Gospels are 100% accurate. Number two, Mark 9.31 says, quote, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. End quote. This is an early saying that probably goes back to Jesus. This is both because he refers to himself as the Son of Man, as we talked about in the last example, and because of the way this verse reads in Aramaic, indicating that this was something that Jesus said in Aramaic before it was translated into Greek for the Gospel of Mark. 3. 1 Corinthians 11, 24-25, Luke 22, 15-20, and Mark 14, 22-24. In 1 Corinthians, Paul records Jesus saying, quote, And when he had given thanks, he broke it, the bread, and said, This is my body, which is broken, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. End quote. 
In sharing this supper with his disciples, Jesus is telling them that he is going to die and is instituting a practice based on that death. The part about the cup in the Lord's Supper in both Luke and Paul reads almost word for word. This means that both of them were probably drawing on an early tradition that Mark didn't use. That means that there is both early material and multiple sources saying that Jesus predicted his death. And finally, number four, Mark 14, 32 to 41, Matthew 26, 36 to 45, and Luke 22, 39 to 46. I'm not going to read it because it's long, but this is the record of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and his discussion with his disciples. Of particular interest here is the fact that Jesus prayed that this cup be taken from him. In other words, he was asking God if it was possible for him not to have to die. And this implies that he knew his death was coming. However, this was also very unlikely to be made up later because it's not easy to explain how this person that early Christians believed was divine would not want to go through with his own plan. There are reports of other Jewish martyrs who behave more bravely than Jesus did here, and so no Christian would make this up. This must have actually happened. So, there you have it. Jesus thought he was the Messiah, the Son of Man, and God in the flesh. He also predicted his own death, and that gives you a pretty good idea about what he thought about himself. Again, whether you believe any of it's true or not is entirely other question. He might not have been those things. But that's what history says the man Jesus actually thought about himself. And when you combine that with what we've gone over in previous episodes, we have a pretty good picture of who this Jesus figure was and what he did during his ministry. However, we have still yet to cover the most interesting part of his ministry, his final trip to Jerusalem, where everything he has been saying and doing comes to a head. And so, in the last four episodes in the series, we're going to cover the last week of Jesus' life in detail. So, stay tuned. In the next episode, we're going to talk about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. 